0: This is the Upper Left Performance Podcast. I am your host Jack Anderson. And before we get into the show today, I just want to direct your attention to several of my offerings, which you can find on my bio uh, on Instagram at jack underscore anderson iii. I, I. Uh, I have a free ebook on there, Quadrant Training, uh, which just details some of my thoughts on the consolidation of stressors between training and sport. And if that interests you, after a reading. You can always try to look at applying those concepts in a sprint-based program, uh, which I have in my bio as well. That is the Quadrant Training Sprint Program, uh, where I combine both just structured training and my love of sprint training together. Make sure you leave a review for the podcast on your listening medium of choice. And thank you, as always, for your support of the Upper Left Performance Podcast. Today in the show, I'm taking a different track Uh, and bringing on several sport coaches for a roundtable in which we discuss tactical and technical development, uh, periodization of practice, and how to best reach and communicate and streamline your approach with athletes. Um, I feel like a lot of times strength and conditioning coaches uh, operate in a silo away from sport coaches or just kind of complain on their own about how sport coaches might not have the necessary understanding of Uh, physiology and physical general physical development and I think really think it's on us to start having more conversations with sport coaches in order to help bridge that gap and and I think on our end I think sport coaches would say and I would agree that we are pretty deficient in terms of understanding what goes into uh, sport in many cases so I really wanted to bring on the following three coaches Uh, to share ideas and to move the conversation forward. Uh, And this is something that I intend to do much more frequently on this podcast uh, with coaches who are interested in having these types of discussions. So if you know anyone interested in doing something like this where we can bridge the gap between strength and conditioning and then the sport itself, please let me know and give me some recommendations so I can get those coaches on. Today's guests, however, are three awesome individuals. Uh, Kyle Bacchus, the head men's soccer coach from Coe College, Max Watson, also a head men's soccer coach for Virginia Military Institute, and Matt Troy, who is the head volleyball coach at Johns Hopkins University, uh, and is coming off of an undefeated season there in which he won the national championship at the Division Three level for volleyball. All three of these guys brought in some tremendous insight, and I really could not thank them enough for coming on. Hope you all enjoy this panel. And as always, your feedback is appreciated. Welcome in, everybody. This is the first uh, roundtable edition of the Upper Left Performance Podcast. And I'm happy to uh, bring in three panelists for this, three coaches, uh, different sports, different uh, levels in the college sector. Uh, We have Matt Troy, Kyle Bacchus, and Max Watson joining us here today. And uh, briefly, guys, and we can start with Matt and then work our way through. Matt, if you want to just give a brief overview of uh, where you've been, what you've done, and uh, where you're at right now, that would be great.
1: yeah, sure, uh, yeah, Matt Troy, I'm the head volleyball coach here at Johns Hopkins, and um, I originally started my career at Hopkins and I was there for about three years and then uh, took the job over at University of Mary Washington um, and uh, was there for six years where I met of course you and and max, and then uh, last year uh, came back to to Hopkins.
0: All right, awesome. And then, uh, Kyle, if you want to go next, that'd be great.
2: Sure. I'm Kyle Abacus. I'm the head men's soccer coach at Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I've only been here since uh, about August and the head coach since November. Prior to that, I was working semi-professional soccer teams and a a director at the youth level. So, yeah.
0: Awesome. And then, Max?
3: Yeah. uh, So, I'm Max Watson, uh, the head men's soccer coach at Virginia Military Institute uh based out of lexington virginia uh i've actually also a, a recent hire similar to, to kyle uh I got the job in, in what was march before all the maybe not the march madness we know but the, the the madness that started to ensue in march um and also obviously spent time with with uh jack and, and matt at the university of mary washington where i was an assistant for for three seasons and have spent coaching stints at multiple high schools and club level as well so
0: Awesome, guys. Thanks a lot. Now, um, jumping right into this, then, uh, one of the things that I'm most interested in in hearing from you guys is a lot of times, like in the strength and conditioning industry, uh, I feel like we kind of operate our own silo a lot of times, specifically at lower levels, just because of how many sports the strength coach or the two people on staff have to work with. Um, I think a lot of time is spent going, well, you know, if this sport coach understood uh, what we know about how to develop an athlete in some ways, like things would be so much better, blah, blah, blah. And I, I certainly have, have said those things myself before. Um, but I think over the last year, I've done a lot of thinking about um, just how little I, and I think a lot of strength coaches, to be honest with you, would know about a particular sport. And the fact that we have these, you know, these, these colleagues in, in terms of you guys, who are just a wealth of information about, you know, respectively, soccer and volleyball And I know Matt and I did discuss volleyball quite a bit. um, But I think honestly, that was the only coach while I was at Mary Washington that I spent that much time talking about like technical and tactical development of volleyball. And it gave me a much better understanding of what to do in the weight room. And I just wanted to know, I don't know how much interaction you guys have with your respective strength coaches, but just kind of go into detail about maybe the best uh, questions that we as strength and conditioning professionals could be asking that's going to generate better conversations uh, for the development of our athletes.
2: And yeah. I, I can go. I, go I go, can, do I it. I Max. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um,
3: no, so we, we're, we're fortunate here with, you know, just kind of the makeup of the department and, uh, we, we have a strength conditioning coach named Logan Moody who works specifically with us and we're, we're, we're very close. And, um, it, it, I think it's just lines of communication, right? I think sometimes the, the, the sport coaches, and then the uh, kind of strength and conditioning coaches, depending on the department and how busy and inundated everybody gets with work on a day-to-day basis, the next game, the next practice, the next uh, travel, right? Whatever it might be. Um, I think it's just tons of communication uh, in terms of what, from the sports side, uh, players are dealing with that moment, right? As well as on the academic side and all the stressors. And then pairing that up with what what we're doing in the weight room, you know? Because I think... Uh, just when coaches get inundated with the day-to-day and what they're doing in training and sometimes that lack of communication starts to happen and uh, then all of a sudden uh, maybe we lose track of what's going on in the weight room and not that it's not good stuff right it's just are we always properly pairing it with uh, what we're doing on the technical side on the field and stuff like that.
2: Yeah and to echo what Max said I know I've worked closely with our strength coach to where I set up our soccer training sessions in advance so that they were periodized physically and tactically and said, here's what we're doing each week. Here's what we're doing each day. Let's try and keep this in mind as you come up with what you're going through. And I think one of the the biggest challenges is um, probably in an ideal world, we're harnessing and leveraging the power of the strength coach more and more on a daily basis but when, like as Max is saying, when you're dealing with academic stressors, social stressors, kids living away from home for the first time, not to mention a, a super condensed, compact season where you're squeezing 20 games into two months. I, I mean, during season, it's just, it's rest and recovery. And I think that harnessing the strength coach to have another voice with your athletes saying, hey, don't go to the gym today, guys. It's the day of the game or it's the day after. I know last year we had guys doing max out sessions because i've got a couple of big strong boys on my team who love the the mirrors and they're doing max out sessions the day before a game and so like i'm telling them no and now i've got the assistant coach and the strength coach saying no no and if he sees them he's like nope um and so i think that that's important because as professionals, you want to be As much as you want to harness sports science, it's also a matter of educating the players and and focusing on that that rest and recovery during different periods of the year.
1: Yeah, and as you spoke to a little bit earlier um, at the beginning of the conversation, you know, for me, I've always tried to make sure that we're communicating with our strength and conditioning coach every single day. Um, So, I mean, you and I had tons of conversations and I think, you know, the typical questions... I feel like I was doing a lot of the question asking um, in just terms of, okay, these are the techniques that we're using. How can we develop those um, within the strength and conditioning side? And then also just the rest and recovery piece, you know, like he was sp- speaking to a little bit earlier and, you know, where are our athletes at different points during the week um, based off when we're going to be playing games and what are we doing in the weight room um, because of that. Uh, we did something a little bit different this year. Uh, I brought it to our strength and conditioning coach, and and he liked the idea. And I, I can't say that I, you know, took it. You know, I came up with it myself. I took it from the uh, Illinois coach, and uh, we went to four days a week uh, lifting, and we would only go about a half hour each of those days right before practice. And one of the reasons we did that was we didn't want to start and stop them twice during the day, and we also felt that with only having a roster of ten. You know, you're looking at loading them up for a 45-minute to an hour workout and then a two-hour practice. And and we just felt like that might be a little bit much uh, during the season. And so we went to half-hour lifts, basically getting them all ready, and then we would go straight into practice probably about 10 minutes after that.
0: Yeah, I think think that's awesome. That's kind of one of the things that – that that I've been toying with a lot you know ironically I was thinking about this the other night Matt and I was thinking about what I would do differently for you guys in season and I think I would have encouraged more lifts and less time uh, for that very reason and then just undulate the stretchers and match them up to practice which is I think something that Max and Kyle both referred to as well Um, that that concept of consolidating stressors I, I believe sorry, I'm trying to remember who it was Kyle you said you've periodized your whole, uh, practice plan in advance, right? What does that kind of look like for you? And what are, this is something on my end that I, I don't, I have a lack of knowledge on, but what, how are we periodizing soccer or any sport, uh, practice and how is that kind of like looking in terms of like what you're doing on a given day and how it progresses or regresses or whatever it is you're going to do?
2: Yeah. And I'll be clear. I'm not an expert. Expert on this. Um, I need to study Portuguese to become an expert, but it's this idea of a tactical periodization and essentially it, it takes the same periodization concepts that like Tudor Bampa would talk about, right? And it applies it to soccer and says that soccer is this complex system of events that we cannot control, but we can find guiding principles. And so our goal is to always train these principles um, and so each session is focusing on a holistic approach. You're not separating out, separating out tactical, physical, psychological, and and all that. You're saying we're training the whole player every single time, every activity, every session. And so each session will have kind of like, maybe the topic is I'm building from the back using my wing players to generate space. But within that topic... Right? I can say, okay, I need certain physical stressors and I want to focus on power development. So if I'm doing that, my activity, my prime activity where I'm, I'm timing intervals, I'm making sure that we're, we're not getting over fatigued is going to be 3v3 or 4v4 because that's going to deal with a lot of short quick movements and so they're going to need adequate recovery and those short quick movements are going to correspond more to like a power out. So if I'm going to the strength coach, I'm saying, hey, this is a power day. Like, let's not have you do aerobics, you know. And, and then obviously I could teach the same concept, like building out of the back, same thing, and say, yeah, 77 is my approach. And if I'm doing that, you know, I can still moderate the intensity, whether I want 50% effort or 75% or 90% based on the number of intervals, the duration of the intervals, and the recovery period, just like you would any weight training session. But that 77 is going to correspond more to either like a power endurance or an aerobic capacity type workout. Um, and so it, it can be a nightmare to plan on the soccer side because first you have to determine what the hell is 100%, right? And obviously your fitness level at the beginning of the season is going to be different from the middle, from the end. And so what's a hundred percent in a three V three activity or four V four activity or 11 V 11 at the start, the middle, the end. And it can be painful, but for me, I think as a coach, I have to honor like that idea, like, like the sports science idea. I wouldn't ask a kid to go in and bench press 50 times until they die and say, "Oh, we're doing three sets of three or four sets of eight. And, and here's your recovery period. And so Everything I do is like, it's timed. And when the beeper goes off, if I haven't seen what I wanted or gotten my coaching point out, that's my issue. But the guys need a break because they they have another bout of exercise. And I think that as soccer coaches, we need more people viewing it through that lens, through a sports science lens. And then we also need more people saying like, we can't separate the tactical and physical. It's, It's all one event right? And we have to be able to be good enough, uh, astute coaches to be able to train all of those things at the same time. And, and from, from a soccer standpoint,
3: Kyle, I mean, you're talking about small-sided games, right? A lot of small-sided game environments where on the, on the soccer-specific side of things, you know, you talk about you can't separate the physical and the, and the technical or tactical, Right. For soccer, the small-sided game is exactly how we're able to, in a lot of situations, merge the two. Right, but as Kyle said, every small-sided game is so complex with every movement you make. Uh, whether it's it's sharp or, or rest and recovery, and there's rest and recovery moments, there's uh, intensity moments, and there's everything in between. Um, and it just it can make it challenging from a planning standpoint because, then, of course, you've got how how the durations and um, the intervals, but uh, but also, that's that's what I love about the the soccer piece of it because you can also make it yours, right? And you can kind of find your style. And um, but but that's also the, the challenge from the soccer standpoint is just how incredibly complex just a three
1: v three game can be from from all those standpoints. So yeah. And I was thinking a little bit uh, going back to the communication piece. You know, a lot of times we talk about you know coaches and and strength and conditioning coaches uh, chatting, but I think it's also important to talk to the athletes. And I know for us, every day before practice, we're getting a um, physical and mental check on them and, and seeing where they're at and communicating that um, with
0: the coaches as well. Matt, I know you do um, quite a bit of, uh, of data-driven stuff, and you do a lot of video analysis. I remember that from UMW. Um, I'm not sure if that's continued at, at Hopkins, but I assume that it has, at least to some extent. Uh, But I also feel like you do a great job tapping into how your players are feeling. Like I've seen what you do post-practice with them and kind of debrief them after things and and really get a feel for like what they're thinking while they're on the court. And the fact that you've managed to like marry those two things together really well, I think is really important because a lot of times, especially nowadays, it seems like there's this data-driven craze where we just look at a tablet and think it's just going to give us all the answers. And yet you've managed to kind of understand that there's two pieces to that.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, when our players come in at the beginning of practice, we have a whiteboard and we allow them to put on the whiteboard how they're feeling. Uh, We ask them to put a number. And then with that number, if it's a little bit lower, let us know what it specifically um, is bothering them. And uh, the one benefit we really found was on the athletic training side. And so, you know, when the athletic trainers are coming into practice, they're looking at this board and maybe there's a player or two that haven't gone to the athletic trainer. And now they're seeing this on the board and they're pulling that athlete aside and saying, hey, what's going on? And, you know, now we're getting that checked a little bit uh, better than maybe before where the, I don't think the athletes necessarily avoiding going to the trainer, but maybe they just felt like it wasn't a big thing. And we're able to take care of that pretty quick. Um, and then, you know, we've done a couple of different things. We have a vert, vert tech that we bring into the gym and sometimes at different points in practice at the very beginning, different days, starting at different points with different days. Uh, we'll have them jump on that to see if their numbers are lower than they were before. And, you know, if we're getting a couple inches lower than they were uh, there's some fatigue going on potentially that, you know, it's not, we're not knowing about. Um, uh, we've also used the, the vert training system. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, And uh, we'd have, we'd track the number of jumps in practice. Now we didn't do that at at Hopkins, but we had that at Mary Washington and, you know, certain positions would get to, you know, a higher number and we would shut them down in practice from jumping anymore. Uh, So, you know, we've been able to use data, but then also, like you said, we've, we've really talked to the athletes and making sure that they're, they're good to go.
0: Yeah. And then um, uh, back to your point too, Kyle, you're talking about kind of expanding the size of a field or you're starting smaller, maybe a three V three, four V four, and then going to seven V seven. Um, from what rang in my mind there is you're just changing constraints in terms of size or space to work with, with those things. And at least for me as a strength coach, I think if we're condensing the size of something, we're probably increasing like the intensity in terms of the amount of change of direction that's going on. Um, you know, decelerations and X and accelerations. And that obviously to me is probably maybe like at the tippy top of the intensity scale when we're talking about practice. Um, Maybe you guys disagree. If you do, I'd love to hear, but, um, is that kind of how you look at things, Uh, you know, and Matt, maybe you do as well. I don't know if you, you do anything to manipulate the the size of your environment. Um, but I was just very curious about that in terms of, for me, like Kyle said, if, if I know we're hitting like a three V three, like really small space, or small sided type of game, I know right away that I am going to target power more, I want to consolidate my stressors and do do the same thing in the weight room on that given day. Um, and, and I just want to know what the key factors in determining what makes something higher intensity for you guys in practice is.
2: Yeah, and I think that you're right on the money there, Jack, the smaller space, the more soccer actions you're generating. And so when I'm talking tactical periodization, the idea with it is, It's going to take into account the physical components and all those stressors. But if you're doing more soccer um, actions, it's also a mental stressor. And we want the players to be functioning at a cognitively high level so that everything we're telling them has an impact. And it's not just going through one ear and out the other. So the smaller space, the more of those stressors are there unless you find a way to minimize that intensity. And I think that, the way in which you coach in that environment can change it. Right. So if you're maybe as the season goes on, it becomes a lot of fun to go 4v4 to goal. And but if you make sure that you know it's a little bit of a hunt to find a ball every now and then, you're limiting the time, but the guys are still having fun. And so you you're you're limiting, even though that space is conducive to a lot of soccer actions, you can limit it by just um, not having balls as available, but if you want it more intense, you have guys around the perimeter and it's nonstop. So I think that there are a bunch of ways to limit it, but really the size and the numbers, right? The, that's, that's what's going to be the biggest factor. Yeah, and,
3: and Sorry, go on that. Oh no, go ahead Max. Well, just, just continuing from the soccer side, it's, it's, I would also say on those small side of games, we've talked about how we can control the point of entry, right, in terms of where a ball is going to drive from every single time a sequence starts, right? And I would say for us, I can change the – the way I try to change the intensity of a small-sided game for players that are participating, yes, is the numbers, but also I just harp and focus on transitional moments, right? Moments from when now the ball went out of play and what's the point of entry and how does it restart, right? Or is when a ball goes out of bounds, is that a transitional moment where – all of a sudden, we've got a new ball that immediately enters because we've got ball servers. Is there a transitional piece where we've played games where even as the ball exits the field, it's neither team's ball. It is a race to go get that ball, right? And then, of course, the intensity is just spiked for those guys surrounding the ball. And then we, we, uh, we can continue playing. And also, everybody's attention spans don't stop either, right? The stressor of the ball is actually still live even though it's not, right? Um, and it just kind of prolongs the intensity level of the of the small sided of games. So,
2: and and obviously
3: you know, on the soccer side, very much so, gone are the days of, of streamline running from a conditioning standpoint and stuff like that. And and these small set of games are the way we're doing it, and, and it's it's in line with what U.S. Soccer is doing and, and everything across the board. So.
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think for, for volleyball, it's a little bit different. Um... I want to say when we get into like the 3v3s or the 4v4s, a lot of time, even though they're getting more contacts, the intensity is lower. Uh, Because once you get into the 6v6, you know, middles are going from pin to pin, blocking. uh, Usually there's harder transitions that are taking place. Uh, So for us, we use the small side of games uh, to get extra contacts. And then we we use the 6v6, our normal gameplay, uh, to really amp up, Uh, the intensity. Um, you know, and, and I think for us last year with only having a roster of 10, we weren't able to do a whole lot of six V six, but we did do some six V four and, um, you know, five V five, things like that. And, uh, you know, for, we would cut that back back our practice times. Like typically we like to go to maybe two and a half every now and then. And, and last year we were between hour, hour and a half and maybe two hours at times. Um, if it was earlier in the week, and we had a few days between games, but, uh, so I, th- I think it's for a matter of roster management as well and what you can do.
2: Yeah, I think your point to like the, the condensed practice time is an important one because I know in the soccer world, there there's still some old school coaches who are like, it's got to be two hours and we're going to get everything in. But to me, like paying attention to what they're able to cognitively take in each session, you have to say, the topic is limited so that we actually understand that topic. And then if you're moderating the intensity and managing that effectively, you could have a great session in 45 minutes, an hour, hour 15, it depends on what your goals are. And, um, not enough coaches, I think, look at that as an option. And, and cause you can always use the, the film room or a recovery session after to like say, no, we still want them focused and working for a certain amount of time, but our sessions don't have to go on and on and on.
3: Well, and and we talked about the stressors of just college athletes, right? And I know for here at VMI, I mean, my goodness, our guys have a lot on their plate, right? Um, And for us being as time efficient as possible, yes, from a rest recovery and and strength training standpoint is important, uh, but even just just for the livelihood, right? Uh, In my opinion, you know, happy and – players that, that feel fulfilled, right? And enjoying what they're doing every second, every day, and every session we step into is uh is almost the, the most important thing for for results and and relationships and in a healthy organization and a healthy program. And I think uh one of the easiest ways to manage that that maybe sometimes is less talked about just because as Kyle said, there's just sometimes the concept of just you've got a two hour time slot for practice and a coach says, well hell I'm gonna use every minute of that, right? When in reality
0: uh, that's actually kind of productive. So I liked, um, what, what you guys are talking about too, with like Kyle, you were saying transition them over to film or something like that. I always found that, uh, when I've observed athletes practicing, like, let's be honest, I don't think a lot of them enjoy practice. So if we can find a way one to make it more enjoyable, like we're talking about, and then two, uh, have those transitional moments into something else maybe where you're even off the pitch, off the court, in the film room. You spend 15 minutes looking at that. I think even having transitions like that, we, like, we as humans crave some novelty and, and changes in our environment from time to time. So while I think structure is great, we have to find a way to marry a little bit of unpredictability in there to keep people invested.
3: Jack, I think it's a good point is it also keeps them, I think, stimulated, right, where yeah. when you get into the doldrums of every day, training, 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 right, the ability to to change the rhythm, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm all about structure and rhythm, and, and Matt, you know, Matt and Jack can attest to that, but uh, but at the same time, I think there's tons of value to making sure guys are stimulated and, and um, changing up the rhythm can, can be an important piece, and for me as a young coach, um, that, that's something, I've had to learn over the years, and, and obviously, got a lot more to learn. But, um, the, the value of changing that rhythm, so I mean, I agree, I agree.
2: Yeah, I think it's important too that, especially at the college level, one of our duties as a coach is to help these players understand that they're developing some lifelong skills in there. And so, on my end, something I'm going to focus on and probably sacrifice maybe my own coaching ability to a degree, like is let's make sure they have time to work on whatever they need to individually every single day. And so that may mean I might wanna go an hour and a half, but if that's our time slot on the field, I've gotta go an hour 10 or an hour to make sure that they can do that. And I think it'll, it shows faith in the coach that your players are going to work. It teaches them how to work and recognize their um, strengths and weaknesses and how to work together to improve them. So I think from a team chemistry side, that can be really impactful and effective, and uh, obviously from an individual development side. Because when we're talking small-sided games, you're getting all these soccer actions and all these decisions, but you are never specifically focusing on technical skill development, right? You might coach it or say, hey, receive across your body, but if I am not that good at it, I might need 100, 150 reps on my own to do that. So setting time aside to do that could be beneficial or the film where it's like maybe i'm a great technical player but my decision making sucks and if we can do a a film session that focuses in on how am i seeing what's going on around me and teach me better ways to recognize and engage with space that can be really effective as well so many tools we have yeah agreed agreed and 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 I would I would take it
3: even one or two steps further. I mean, obviously we're in the, the era of Zoom right now, right? And we're trying to operate with our teams through through virtual means. And, you know, for us, we talked about stressors. Oftentimes there's a lot of schoolwork to, to be done. And you know, reading another book might just be more, more work and another stressor, right? But the ability to to teach cultural concepts and change the rhythm through through different readings and different ideas and the presentation of ideas. And then, you know, to give a, give you guys a little bit of a look in our program, I mean, uh, this this coming Thursday, we're looking, we're, we're doing a men's soccer trivia night, right? Just to change the the rhythm of in the week to week of what we're doing, and and uh, but also you can use those clever things to further educate your players, right, on on how how NCAA tournament works, right, and how we qualify for those things. Where oftentimes, I think coaches sometimes don't even don't even talk or educate their players as much on that stuff because we love the sport don't get me wrong and we want to coach we want to be on the field or on the court but um also having a program and players that are educated on some of that stuff and they don't even realize they're taking the time to learn it right uh, is, is usually the best part so
0: again you get you get at this is another thing that's interesting to me you guys get like we get athletes and we're talking about what i think is like really great like we're moving forward with what's going on here in this very discussion, you know, very progressive in a lot of ways, especially away from like old school coaching. But I find too, like, we want the athletes to be invested in this. But if you guys like run into issues when doing this, where uh, Kyle, for example, you said like, I, this kid needs to work on this specific tactical, or I'm sorry, technical thing uh, on his own time, like in practice in this little time I've carved out, has it taken a while to kind of build that culture where guys are going to take it upon themselves to get, better at those things or are you just getting the right type of player in immediately and that's happening and I'm sure it kind of varies across the board but how do you like view understanding that, like yes I know all these things I can provide the player with the the option to do it his or herself uh, but it's ultimately on them to like embrace that path of self-discovery and get better it's for example these technical elements
2: yeah I think it's the answer is yes to everything. It's a challenge. It's it's about generating that culture. It's about getting lucky. And, and to me as a coach, it's about being flexible and, and viewing myself not as someone who's there to manage performance, but as someone who's there to teach somebody to manage their performance and to recognize that when I was a player, I spent most of my time injured because my coach was not up on like the sports science. And, and so there's this idea of like, build that mental gritty edge, but if you have someone who's already got that, they run themselves into the ground, and they're injured, and so you've lost a good player, so my thought is, I've told the guys, this: like, well, you can stay after, but if you have a pressing matter, go go handle that, And, and my expectation is that eventually, everyone is going to embrace it, because their team's going to hold them accountable, or the ones who aren't going to embrace it, they're going to get left behind, and you know that's that's their personal choice at that moment. You know when you've been provided opportunities, facilities, equipment, and a time slot where you have other teammates and peers engaging in that activity. If you choose to step away from that, that's why it takes some some resolve, right? You have to really be committing to not be committed. And you know if you if you've chosen that path, then it'll be clear your playing time will suffer. But again, like I tell my guys like the best player on the field, if he, if he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Cause my body hurts. He's not going to do that. And he's probably still going to be the best player on the field because he knows what his body needs. When I coached semi pro up in Duluth, Minnesota, we were preparing for um, national tournament against Detroit FC. And we were going to play in front of seven, 8,000 fans. And our captain, who's our, one of our best players, he played, grueling minute after grueling minute in that two weeks leading up to that um, playoff game, he trained twice and he he wasn't injured, but he was just feeling a little run down. And he's like, I'll I'll come out to sessions. I'll watch, but he needed that. And he scored, I think two goals in that game. We lost, but like he was still, he put in the time years in advance that his body needed something, his mind needed something. And as a coach, I think if we're willing to not manage the player, but provide them with the tools to manage themselves and be willing to accept that. Right. And sometimes it has great payoff and other times you get screwed. But if we're willing to accept that, I I think more often than not, you're going to see players really embrace that culture and hold each other accountable to working smarter, working more efficiently.
1: And I would say going along with that, you know, we talked to our, our players about being proactive in their own growth and, you know, soccer, depending on how many coaches they have, their roster's, what, twice the size of ours. And so if they have one or two coaches and they're dealing with 26 plus athletes. You know, they don't have that time individually to work with them every single day and just put that focus on one individual. And so, I mean, we're even that way in the volleyball world. You know, one or two coaches up to seventeen, eighteen, and so for us, uh, we try to make sure that we take time once a week with each one individually for about ten or fifteen minutes, and they come in and they'll do film. But we don't just we we've, we've kind of flipped it a little bit. Where I think in the past, you find coaches will go, they'll look at film, they'll cut the film, and then they'll bring the player in and they'll tell them all the things that they want them to get better at, and it's a double-edged sword, right? Because yeah, they're giving them information, but the same token, you're pretty much telling them all the things they're not very good at. And so what we flipped was we have them go find the things that they want to work on. And then they bring that back to us. And then now we're you know, collaborating with them and how to help them achieve their goals. And so you get a little bit more buy-in that way because it's things they want to work on. And then once they hit the things they want to work on, now they're looking for more And they're asking you, what else can I do to get better? And so now all that stuff you wanted to give them right away, they're more receptive to. And so that's something that we did. And, um, you know, our players have given us great feedback on it.
2: Yeah, that sounds like an awesome way, Matt, to drive engagement and make sure that players feel like they have a real active role in their development. Um, Yeah, that's awesome. I I think I'll have to try that this season. (laughs)
1: Well, and it also works well for those that maybe don't think about putting in that extra time or never really have watched film. It, you know, you, you make it where you're, you're telling them they need to, but then once they see the benefit of it, they buy into it. And they're like, oh, this isn't so bad. Like, I like this. And, um, you know, for our starters, they can use game film and we film every practice. And so what we do is those that aren't starting, we ask them to look at practice film. And that way everybody's still being involved in the process and it's not just if you're playing, you're getting better. And if you're not playing, you're not. Nice. Not that if you're not playing, you're not, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> the players see it as, well, I don't have game film to watch. So why watch film?
3: Oh, no, I've had, I've had players say that to, to, to us before, right. At different institutions I've worked at as well as, as well as here. And from a soccer standpoint, uh, this spring before, kind of everything that occurred in the world when we were still training uh, was, was the first time I think this program in a while has, has filmed practices. Right. And, and I don't know if we were with the end goal that, that Matt was so able to kind of fluently, fluently say, um, but no, it's, it's a, it's a great piece of advice. And I think uh, that that's a big deterrent to maybe the players that need to watch the film most is, well, coach, I'm not even on the film. Right. Uh, which is, it's a, it's a great point And um from a soccer standpoint, Matt made the point of, you know, obviously just bodies, right? We, we tend to have more bodies and it can be more difficult to do maybe some of that individual reference. And uh, I think coaches just got to, again, we talked about being time efficient. You just got to be as clever as you, as you can. So we do a lot of small group stuff, even from the technical standpoint that Kyle's talking about. Um, I would say for us, because of the way VMI is and how unique of a university it is, I don't know if I always have that additional time to give, right? uh just just because of the hours in a day right so we actually start reverting to a lot of small group positional oriented position specific stuff where maybe we can hit that uh technical point that kyle knows this this one individual needs but hearing it's going to benefit the group at large right uh when i say the group at large i mean that position at large the center forwards at large or something like that so and we've gone that direction with with film at points as well um but Yes, that that's that's kind of been our solution. And um, again, I always lean on how unique we are as a university. But, um, you know, everybody's got their challenges. It's just who's clever enough to find the solutions, you know.
1: And I think going off of what Max was saying with the, the small group instruction is also you're, you're talking about this and maybe you're hitting that one or two individuals that need a specific technique. But now that group is also helping that individual because they're going to watch it in practice. And um, you know, and a lot of times maybe they're even that individual that's working on that piece is gonna ask their teammates, Hey, can you watch me in this area? And so now they're they're working together and you know, there's more coaching eyes, so to speak, on, on that individual player.
3: Which you could argue would
0: create some leaders as well, no? I think so, <laughs> <laughs> so Kyle, you mentioned uh earlier too um the mental toughness piece and I've always find that very interesting because I think it's a very vague quite honestly it's a bullshit concept in my opinion because it could be anything (laughs) um um, and I feel like it's just kind of blanketed over uh, what could be almost any issue um I'm curious when you guys are getting to know your players and, and and evaluating them is that kind of terminology something that's present for you guys um or if not, like what are kind of you looking at in terms of developing uh, your athletes? If you perceive there to be a disconnect somewhere, are you attributing it to that mental toughness component or are you kind of trying to dig deeper and understand there's going to be like some layers to that, that concept?
2: I, I think for me, uh, like I, I struggle with the whole idea of mental toughness. I, I'm with you, Jack. I think it's, bit of bullshit. Um, <laughs> when I was assistant coach this past year, the head coach at one point, he wanted to get them mentally tough, and they ran like 14, 50-yard dashes in five minutes. And he didn't get him mentally tough. He got him ready to kill him. Um, and, and I think that as coaches, we have to move away from that. Yes, it, like at some point, sports psychology enters in. But maybe that's not something I'm most qualified to deal with. And so I might need to find help on that to really understand what's going on with a specific player. And I think with limited resources, what I'm going to focus on isn't like, are are my guys like mentally tough? Can they push through this? Can I train them physically? Remember the Titan style and miracle and all that crap. It's can I teach them effectively, responsibly, and, and make sure that, at the end of the day, they're still healthy because if I'm able to do that, I'm going to, you know, be able to make sure that they have a solid foundation so that when we do encounter adversity, we have a we're entering from a position of strength. And obviously everything I'm saying right now is still kind of vague, but it, it's one of those things. That I think that it does depend on players. And and that's where like it like what uh, Max was saying like comes down to how efficient are we as a coach? How good are we at recognizing or gaining data from players about how they're feeling, what's going on with their family? Did did a cat die? Are they having emotional issues and addressing those from a, from a standpoint of compassion and understanding, but not with a goal of generating mental toughness, but with a goal of saying, I'm going to meet each player where he or she is and help them through whatever situation they're encountering. Because I don't think blanket approaches work. I mean, you treat a star player, even at the pro level, differently, right? Not necessarily because he's a star, but because he has different things going on in his life, right? You treat, create a, role, treat a role player differently than other role players because of who that individual is. So to me, it's got to be as individualized as time will allow it frequent conversations like Matt, you saying you're trying to meet with each player um, weekly, I think is amazing. And that's something like I'm resolved to do this year. We're going to carry a roster of close to 40 guys. But to me, the, yeah, brutal. And I don't have a full-time assistant. Um,
1: Might be so, one every three weeks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll probably make a list of like 10 to 12 guys to call and chat with for three minutes each day. And just say, hey, how's it going? And checking in so that they understand, like, yeah, they might not see playtime. I might not make a coaching point to them in training, but I know they exist. I know what their strengths are, and and I'm aware of their weaknesses. And I think that that is far more important than trying to create mentally tough players, because what does that even mean?
1: Yeah, and I think when you think about mentally tough, right, you think of certain athletes specifically, you know, like for me, I would think of like Kobe Bryant or... Uh, Michael Jordan, things of uh, of that nature. Um, But the qualities that a lot of them emulate were more to be along the lines of they were confident and they were well-prepared. And so for me, I want my players to always feel confident going to the match because they're well-prepared and they know what to expect and they've been able to execute it in practice. And, And going off what Kyle said, like running them to death just to try to see if they're tough enough um, to be on your squad or that they're going to fight, you know, my motive, you tell me to go run a whole lot. I'm not going to be that motivated, but you put me in a game situation and ask me to win that game. I'm going to go after it. Um, so I I think it's creating an environment that allows them to grow as athletes, um, and, and be prepared and then gain that confidence over time to go out there. And and when they're on the court, they're not even worried about it. So it could be a pressure moment, but to them, they've done it a hundred times in practice already. And I think that's what it's about. When I think of mental, mental toughness, those are two things that I think about and being relentless. We talk about that a lot is just going after it all the time. And um, regardless of score or regardless of, um, you know, how we're feeling as terms of, uh, you know, if we're feeling a little bit down, we're still going to go after it. Um, you know, but not, of course, not if they're physically hurt or anything like that.
0: Yeah. And if you, if you align mental toughness with like physical adversity to me and you're picking physical adversity that is not task specific right like you 're talking about right here I, I fail to see how an athlete draws a connection and gets tougher like I just don't get that <laughs> you know
3: so <laughs> no and jack it's interesting because i so for for me, I relate the mental toughness piece solely to to the the emotional right uh, not not so much the physical and and for us, a constant thing i'm saying in training is you know like be mentally strong enough, be mentally tough enough to just get over it. And I'm not talking about how fast you just ran that sprint, right? What I'm talking about is, is are you mentally like the amount of players I see these days that come out of club soccer with bad habits of every time I don't complete a pass, um, I, I have this adverse reaction, right? Or, or I throw my hands up in the air or I curse or whatever, right? Meanwhile, play continues and we've lost two seconds on a transition. So there's the the, the, the technical piece we're losing, but don't get me wrong, maybe they did have a bad day, right? So I think it's the balance of at the end of training, can you put the arm around that player and have that conversation that Kyle's talking about? But in the moment, can we compartmentalize so we also make sure we perform and also enjoy ourselves on the field and compartmentalize those things? And, and Kyle, you were talking about, you know, size of squad. We're, we're around 30. Um, but what I found interesting is you talked about call, calling them up as well. And I think, I think that's awesome and it shows the personal touch Something we've started to do here as well because, again, time is of the essence. It's about a three, three-and-a-half-minute walk from the locker room to our training field. Multiply that by two. That's about seven minutes you have before and after practice where you can communicate with three or four or five guys. You know, and we, we've started to try to value that and multiply that by maybe two, three, four staff members, however many you have, now you've connected with 15 guys. Maybe that's a little audacious, but you get what I'm getting at, right? Like your ability and using time to connect. So that would just be something I'd say to
0: that. So. We get it. We get it. You're in D1. You have multiple assistants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding, man. Just kidding. One uh, of the last things I wanted to focus on since we seem to be transitioning over towards uh, the physical realm. Um, what are some things like you guys have been in a lot of places and I assume like You all have worked with different strength coaches and whatnot um, and have accumulated some knowledge on that side of things. What are some fitness qualities for you that are really important and that you feel maybe could be better addressed by the strength coach so that the approach is more streamlined?
2: I think it's really tough, at least in soccer, to give a general answer. You know, I have a center mid who's incredibly, like, dynamic agile site lateral movements incredible um and he's texting me he's coach i need to get faster what are exercises i can do i like you actually don't need to do anything except stay healthy but then i have a kid who might want to be a winger we have a winger who can run 10 70s in a row and still be the fastest guy on the field so for him it's like yeah if, if you want to compete there you you do need to get faster and so i almost think it depends like position to position and but that's I mean unless you have the resources as a strength coach and are working with the staff I think that's that's brutal to try and uh work through and so I think it, it falls on the coach to kind of say look here here are guys who kind of fall into different categories as far as their needs because you see them play and it's like so for me I gave our, I talked through each player with the strength coach and say look you can't give them anything that's general. They all need to work on like their foundational strength, their foundational movement skills, developing a base so they can generate more power and speed and, and repetitive power and speed. But I don't care if this kid um, ever improves in his weightlifting numbers because he's, he's perfect the way he is. And if you look like the soccer side, like Neymar, he came out like a skinny little dude. And when, Barcelona PSG they say we're, we're keeping your your ratios from upper body to core to lower body the same so every workout you do is going to be a full body um, complex chain um, workout because we don't want you changing anything you know it'd be like if you're asking Steph Curry to put on 10 pounds it could throw off his shooting mechanics and the, the skill is so much more important. So make sure Steph's ankles are stable by transitioning his movement structure to his hips. And I think that that, for me, it's got to depend on the, the role the player plays in the, in the game, right? And in soccer, you have probably four or five different needs, right? From guys who are going up and down to guys who are just doing short bursts to guys who are primarily lateral and then guys who need to be more physical and stronger and, and you have those dynamics and god bless a strength coach if he's willing to come up with individualized or role-based patterns for that but um, most likely not so i think it's it's more for me at least it's managing the expectations of the strength coach and saying i'm okay if this guy shows minimal improvement as long as he's respecting you and taking it seriously and staying healthy." Whereas this guy, I, I want to see a 20% increase because he needs this. And so it's, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, as, as certainly uh, position specific, even within volleyball, you know, when you have your attackers on the front line and, you know, they need those big explosive dynamic movements, but then you have your liberos in the back who really don't jump at all. And they're more about quickness and being stable. Um, but, and you know, this with me, Jack is, I never tried to say that I'm an expert in this field Um, in any way, you know, I know, I know my coaching role and I utilize my strength and conditioning coaches and, and ask for their knowledge. And, and I put a lot of trust in them um, because I know how hard they've trained and the vast knowledge that they have. So for me, it's, it's more or less just asking our strength and conditioning coach, Hey, what do you need out of this player? And um, how can we help and, and support that? And I think as coaches, sometimes, we tend to be the ones giving all the information and telling what we want and how we want it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of type A personalities in our, our field. And I, I think it's important to be able, as a coach, to step back and just say, hey, what do you need from us and what do you need from our athletes and how can we support that? And uh, the other thing we always try to do is see if the strength and conditioning coach has time, which normally they they may or may not because they're taking care of like 20 teams (laughs) for one coach, especially the D3 level. And, and Jack, you've been a part of that Um, is if they can come into a practice and just watch the athletes move. And I know you were able to do that a few times and we were able to find deficiencies from your expertise, just watching them move in a way or jump and like, Hey, why are they loading that way when we need to work on, on whatever piece it might be within their, their jumping mechanics. So. That's a little bit soapbox, I would suppose, as a, as I'm going off a, a little bit here. But I, I, for me, I always uh, default to the strength and conditioning coach.
3: But but I, I totally agree with, with Matt because it's not necessarily my, my specific background and whatnot. But um, I, I always call our strength and conditioning coach uh, our expert in that regard. right? And I think there's a lot of coaches uh, – in general at the college level that, that almost starts to insert themselves in the work of the strength coach when maybe they're not, that's not necessarily their background. Right. And that can kind of make the waters a little murky and maybe mix the message in terms of what's being presented to players, which as we've talked about the amount on players is plate and how customized things ideally could be and should be. And my goodness, if we can make, if we can make it simple and effective in the weight room and allow our strength conditioning coaches to be our experts for us, as long as we have proper communication and can express what we're looking for from the technical and the tactical and the soccer or just the sport side of things is Matt's saying. And, you know, Jack, to answer your original question, you know, Kyle obviously made the point that, it, that there isn't a one fit all answer, right. When it comes to that. And I think I totally agree. There isn't, but over my years in coaching, I've tried to, do, to find the one word answer that obviously isn't going to do a very good job. Right. But I always say, at a, at a base level, if I feel like we're making our guys simply more athletic on a day-to-day basis, of course, look, there needs to be rest. There needs to be recovery. There's periodization, et cetera. Right. And again, it's not a great answer, but it's the best I could find for the, the blanket answer, right, is if we're simply making our guys more athletic, um, and that's going to help us on the soccer side of things. And obviously division one soccer and, and certain of the athleticism pieces that come with that. But, um, and don't get me wrong. Totally agree with what Kyle said about the customization. And we, we think about all those things. We do all those things. But, um, but for the, the blanket answer, that's what I would say.
0: Has the landscape, because you guys have been in the game now for a while, uh, have athletes changed physically when you inherit them from wherever they came from uh, over the past you know, 10 or so years? Like what's changed? Or has nothing changed? for on Just the volleyball, general general physical qualities i would say
1: on the volleyball side i mean i know club teams are getting a little bit more into adding strength and conditioning but it's a very minimal base and and i know i think jack you, you had worked at our club in fredericksburg and you know i mean that's kind of the introduction they're getting to it um we we honestly we see our biggest growth and the change in the athletes once they hit you know college and get in the weight room and I've seen a, a, almost a consistent pattern of that probably over the last ten years. I don't think that's changed a whole lot, at least on the volleyball side. Maybe soccer could be a little bit different. They can speak to that, um, you know. And we also collected data on it, right? So we were able to see, you know, certain max maxes, and we wouldn't necessarily do one rep maxes um, for certain for for certain skills, but we were able to take their strength and calculate it that if they hit a certain percentage you saw that their verticals were in a, in a, you know, specific number. Uh, I'm not going to give all that, that information out. You know, we did all that, <laughs> but um, you know, so I, I, you know, for us, we know the value of it. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I've seen a big change in, in the athletes, so to speak, and on the volleyball side on the women's volleyball side.
3: I think from a soccer standpoint, I would say over the last, you know, 10, 11 years in college soccer as, as coach, as player, et cetera, I would say I think our athletes, when they come in as first years, are a little bit more, let's say, familiar, and, and, and whether it be through, through home gym experiences or, or um, you know, just simply knowing that college soccer has all these physical demands, so they're trying to do some level of lifting before they come in and, and strengthen and conditioning, strength conditioning work. Um, so I think every year what I'm finding is just a higher percentage of guys uh, coming in as first years uh, have some familiarity, some commitment to some technique, whereas I think 10 years ago uh, it, was, it was less that. So
1: yeah, I would agree 100% on that.
2: I, I, I just think it's interesting because I agree with both of your guys' assessment on that. But for soccer, and I played other sports in high school. I didn't do soccer. And so, like, football and wrestling were kind of two of my sports. And so, if you wanted to play, you'd better get your numbers up, right? Because that had a correspondence to how much speed you were able to gain. And speed was an integral part of those games. Whereas I look at soccer, and, you know, when we did testing throughout college, I always performed in the top two or three on the team. But I wasn't a starter because I wasn't quite good enough. And I look at even my team now, I have some guys who are athletic freaks and some who aren't. And those, some of those guys who aren't are my best players, right? And you have a mix. And I think if they're trying to get to the next level, they have to become more and more athletic but maybe that doesn't correspond to the weight room for some of them, and I'm thinking in particular of a kid who's he's never lifted weights, and yet his uh, his lateral shifting ability and balance with that, and power and explosiveness is unreal. And so, was that developed naturally? Was that developed through the game, which is an athletic activity? I, I just struggle with this because my bent has always been like, if I'm going to equalize, I have to get stronger. I have to get faster probably bigger right and but i'm seeing like plenty of players who 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 completely eschew that even and so the weight room can potentially make them better but if it comes at the sacrifice of them and their skill then it might not and so it's just i i have no idea on what the hell that means but i just think it's interesting particularly in soccer where i'm looking at like some of the guys who are spending the most time focusing on that are not the best players.
0: It's so, it's so interesting. You mentioned that too, Kyle, because this is honestly something that I talk about on the podcast a lot with all my guests. I think the weight room has a lot of limitations, especially for certain athletes at certain points in their career there. I think when you, when you have someone that doesn't have a, like you mentioned foundational movement, or like maybe a foundational aerobic capacity or something like that. If you inherit a player like that, then yes, I think the weight room can be very beneficial for them early on. But after a certain point, I think we see diminishing returns on what we put into the weight room. And a lot of what goes on in the weight room is we reach for higher and higher task specific performance numbers in the weight room leads to a lack of athleticism in some cases. If we go down that rabbit hole too far, because what is max effort lifting? I mean, if you're looking along a continuum of like fluidity of movement, it's not close to the fluid side of things, you know? So it's a big, that's a big deal in my opinion. I think it is important that we learn to brace and, and build strength and have some connective tissue resiliency from lifting. But at a certain point, I think it does start to become uh, less effective or less useful. So I think that's a brilliant point. Now, now, Jack, have you found, cause I feel like I found this
1: when we would uh, track our athletes at Mary Washington you see huge gains, freshman and sophomore year, you know, significant gains junior year. They seem to almost reach their max maximum. And then senior year, it's a little bit more of just maintaining them because their bodies are breaking down a little bit from just the wear and tear of being an athlete. And I know for us, we kind of really want to develop our freshmen and sophomores and then on the back end, make sure that our athletes are staying healthy and maintaining their strength, um, but not necessarily, like you said, trying to go to that one next step because now they're really overloading their bodies on top of being an athlete to try to reach maybe 10 more pounds.
0: Yeah, I think you're 100% correct, um, specifically specifically with, like, I think your sport in general, too. The amount of wear and tear that happens from jumping is is insane, and if you've developed a girl's performance to be as high as, for example, like, you know, like Sav's was the year I was there. I mean, I think she, she and Peyton hit like 30 inches on a just jumper. It was like just short of 30 inches on a vertical. Like, I mean, these girls are already six feet tall. So like very well-trained athletes, but once you start reaching performance, that that's high, that is that high to me, I'm viewing performance and health on a continuum. And if we've moved that far down, you know, the continuum on the performance side, it is going to come at the expense of health. And at a certain point, we have to know when to kind of rein in some of the general development. That's, that's my lane so that they are ready to go for your specific needs, you know, on a game day and stuff like that. And I think, I think it's a brilliant point. I mean, yeah, it's a, in in the four year process of developing a college athlete after a certain point, specifically for non-football related sports, where I think strength is just more important in something like football. um, Yeah. It's time to kind of scale back a little bit again, depends on the athlete, but in general, it's time to scale back what we're doing uh, on a, from a performance standpoint in the weight room, so that they're ready to go when they play.
3: And and what I would also add is I think, especially maybe they're one, when you're one or two years in and they've seen certain gains, or even somebody after their first year, right? I think it's important for coaches. And I don't know how much this conversation occurs, but to make sure that that person's work in the weight room, or from a strength and conditioning standpoint, is still focused on performance, right? I think a lot of times players. We'll start getting carried away with, you know, we joke about the beach body or however you want to look at it, right? But they lose perspective just because either A, they enjoy the weight room that much and they're passionate about it, or B, they enjoy the gains that they're seeing, but we forget the whole point of why you're doing that, right? And it's hopefully to help you increase performance. Um, And, you know, I think – uh, probably at all levels we battle it, but I, I certainly have a couple where it's 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 not always just about the the visual of how you look, right? It's it's uh, it's making sure the performance side is is still the the end the end goal.
0: So yeah, I mean, having worked in uh, all three of the four pro sports now, like I've just been exposed to so many different body types. And I'm working – all of them are elite, you know. If you've reached professional sports, you're elite in my opinion, you know, in a lot of ways. You might not be the LeBron or something like that, but you're an elite athlete compared to almost everyone else in the world. And, I mean, you would be surprised some of the bodies you see. They don't look like they're built for performance, but they can perform, you know. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's a great point. Well, I, thought, I thought it was interesting, too, um, when I was watching
1: uh, the Michael Jordan documentary where the strength and conditioning coach oh, mentioned how the training for mm-hmm. baseball – is completely different from the training from basketball and the body types are different and what you're doing and, and how one's going to counteract the other. And I think that also goes to show the importance of having a strength and conditioning coach who can separate what this sport needs compared to what that sport needs and in the individual athlete. And so I just thought that was a, a great reinforcer for
0: um, all of you in, in that field. Thank you. Thank you. It was a, it was a nice moment. I was pretty happy when they talked about the it. <laughs> <kids. laughs> well,
2: I, um, I thought you had a real interesting point, Jack, about like the, the spectrum of performance and health. And I think that that's something that like as coaches, if we can keep that in mind more, we'll probably achieve better performance, but that health perspective, you see so many athletes come out and they're broken down and for years it's trying to, and I know I've, I've been a part of this, trying to figure out how does my body actually work so that I can just be a normal human being and, and healthy, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right and that's one thing, especially I think, you know, when I was at Mary Wash too. And honestly, I think this applies in a lot of college cases. I think pro's a little different because this is your livelihood. I think the expectation is you're performing at such a high level by the time you're done, you're just not going to feel great. Like, I hate to say it like, but that's just kind of the reality, the nature of the beast. But if you're an athlete that doesn't have pro aspirations or isn't going to have the skill level, I really feel like the strength and conditioning coaches mission is to also help the sport coaches understand like there's life after college and you cannot view the athlete as a vehicle to your success only. Like it is important, obviously, because job security, like you guys need to keep your jobs, you know, but we have to ensure that we understand that after a four year period, the athlete isn't completely broken down. We need to teach the athlete, the value of scaling back, understanding how to maintain their health so that not only are they good after school, but by their senior year, they're also at their, maybe not at their best, but as close to their best as possible. And I think you see that fatigue, like that senior fatigue from some players. I don't know if you guys want to like shed any light on that, but you could just tell sometimes, Players are just done. Like they're just done their senior year and you don't get their, your best out of them because you ask for too much. Well, we had um, a player this year at Hopkins who played the entire season. She had heard it.
1: Her, um, she had tore her hip, her labrum in her hip. And she played the entire season on a torn hip labrum. And we had to maintain and monitor that throughout the year. And there were times where, um, you know, we were telling her like, hey, you can you can only practice 20 minutes. <laughs> like you get this amount of time, or you can do this much, or you're not allowed to jump today, and um, you know, and it's, and I think sometimes we forget as coaches, just the mental anguish on that player not being able to practice and feeling like they're performing at the level they want to perform. And and she did a great job with that, but I know there were days that um, were pretty, pretty tough on her emotionally just because she's dealing with this pain and wanting to be able to do the things that she normally could do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think it's important to, to keep that in mind too, that just that mental health component of, of those, those older players that are hurt. And Kyle might be able to speak to that since he said he was hurt most of the time. <laughs> but <laughs>
2: yeah, it's, it's not easy, uh, but I, I, I like what you're doing. Like to me, if, if the head coach says they're aware of the injury and I'm cutting you off. That takes a lot of the pressure off the player to come back beforehand and and I don't think enough coaches do that. I think there's an emphasis and I've seen this from other coaches like it's just a little injury, come on back, you can push through. Whereas I think if we say, "Oh, you're injured, you cannot perform at your best ability, somebody else can." Let's let's give them a chance. Let's get you healthy and go through this cycle together. You could eliminate a lot of that mental anguish, perhaps.
3: I think some of that mental anguish is ultimately players just want to feel safe, right? They want to feel safe in their role, they want to feel valued. And I think what you guys just what you both just said is is ultimately making that player, despite injuries, despite despite health, uh and probably questioning their role and the anguish as you described. I mean, if you make that player feel safe, uh, I'm going to argue just from a mental health standpoint, they're going to recover even faster than physically as well. So,
0: The brain, the brain is very powerful. It, it's crazy. If you, if you perceive a lot of threat, then bad things are usually going to happen. And I think that's for me, anyway is like the biggest lesson I've taken away uh, on the strength and conditioning side is it's like you have guys come in and they're not sure what to expect, or it's not familiar to some of them. And, And for me, it's like I think the biggest change that I've had in the last couple years, and I I wish that I was able to understand this a little more even when I was at Mary Wash. I think I did a pretty good job of it overall anyways, but just getting athletes to understand, like, I'm here for you. I know this is maybe a foreign environment, but we're going to work together to get you some adaptations that you might want and to provide a space for you where you feel like you can uh, let your guard down and allow some really cool things to happen in your body. You know, I always look at like, for example, like everybody talks about KPIs, like key performance indicators, right? And they talk about like, for me, it's like, Oh, how much does someone back squat? Or how much does someone do this? For me, I've changed my, what my KPIs look like. I actually call them like KPIs. So like I you do a lot of eyeball stuff. So like I'm very into uh you know cultivating linear speed. I think if you do that correctly in the weight room and dose it properly, you're going to eliminate a lot of potential injuries when the coaches say it's time to roll the balls out and play um, and, and for me i I have an eye for understanding when certain shin angles need to be hit or something like that. And all I need to do is ask the athlete what it feels like, show them a little video like you guys have talked about in in your practice sessions, and boom, these things start to line up for them, you know and uh if they perceive threat, some of those KPIs involve like using the range of motion you have given to you on a specific thing. If you perceive threat, the brain's going to shut that down because it's going to crave stability. It's going to internalize, bring everything into the center, and it's not going to give you the the range of motion you need, for example, in your appendicular skeleton. And I know it might sound a little hokey to some of the listeners, but it's something I've talked about a bunch of the podcasts before. So it's just kind of the way it is now for me. It's like if. If I know and see you in a game being able to do something and you can't do it for me in the weight room, then that's a me thing. I have to change something about the environment to get you to open up, you know.
1: And I I think for us, too, one thing that we started to notice um, in our gym were some common, not necessarily injuries, but just kind of aches and pains. Um, And so with working with our strength and conditioning coach and our athletic trainer, we kind of took a three-pronged approach and made sure we were prehabbing. Uh, before every every practice and one thing we did last year was um, if they went out down for their 30 minute lift and say their lift what they did was more lower body then our prehab would be shoulders that day when they came into our gym before practice and if they did a little more upper body and and a little less lower body then maybe we were prehabbing the ankles and the hips Um, and so we would just kind of counteract whatever they were doing to make sure they were per- fully prepared and and uh, cutting down on on those things. I'm shin splints were always a huge one with our, our our attackers, and I imagine in soccer you get a lot of shin splints. And I think it's also educating the freshman how important it is. As soon as that's starting to bug you, like go to the trainer because they all feel like oh it's just something little, and then a week later it's a full blown you know shin splint. And, you know, I don't know the time period, but it always seems like it's a week later. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so we we really emphasize any little ache and pain. Talk to your trainer. Talk to your strength and conditioning coach. Make sure that that, that's happening.
3: Well, and, you know, the the most frustrating perspective is the, well, if I report this little niggling thing to my strength coach as well as my athletic trainer, coach isn't going to play me, right? So that's the, you know, that's the immediate concern. But obviously, we, we work to change that quickly. But,
1: yeah. Well, and I I think that just comes down to the reaction the coach makes after all of that's taken place, right? So still want to feel safe, right? Have your athlete trust like, oh, you know, like coach isn't going to bench me because he knows my shins bothering me. He's going to try to make sure that I'm ready to play the game instead.
0: I, I think you you find a better culture in that. Matt, Matt had Matt had, had no choice last year though because he had two players on his bench. <laughs> <laughs> at, one point, at one point, I had one sub. <laughs> oh man, down to seven. So, I hate to do this, guys, but I know Max has to get out of here. So I think yeah. this this will probably about wrap it up. But any part like closing thoughts from any of you on anything we discussed or something we didn't discuss that interests you.
1: No, I think this was great. I, I enjoyed being able to chat, and I think it's it's reassuring to see that other sports – because, you know, typically we talk with volleyball. Now, Max and I would go to lunch all the time and, yeah. and chat. And Usually that was philosophy and, and things like that. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's nice to see that for an athlete, the same principles apply regardless of sport. You know, just work hard, communicate, trust, and um, – you know and mental health i think those are those are four big factors and i think all three coaches hit upon those which is which is cool to see yeah
2: yeah no go on carl thanks max yeah just kind of to your point earlier matt about like needing as a coach as a sport coach to kind of seed some of your your power if you will to the strength and conditioning coach and say look you're the expert in this and my thought has always been, and I'm a former personal trainer, but the more that a sports specific coach can kind of dive into the sports performance, the exercise physiology side, the better a coach he or she'll be because you have a deeper understanding of the, the demands and what the body's capable of. And and my, my just,
3: I mean, obviously I agree. And then Jack, thanks obviously for having, having us on, having me on as well. And, uh, obviously we're, we're in a weird time in the world for, for all sorts of reasons and circumstances, but the, the virtual world we're in right now with zoom and, and the webinars and the workshops and everything that's going on in the world right now, because we can't have the human contact. I just encourage, I know I'm going to be doing my best too. And I encourage others like don't just because things might improve in six months doesn't mean you stop having the conversations and the ability to virtual virtually connect and continue to educate yourselves. Cause I think a lot of people have used this time where we're not recruiting every weekend, right guys, to, to continue to improve each other and improve ourselves. And hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully everybody continues to do it. Cause I do, I do think, I do think it's great. So
0: awesome. You know, guys, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. I think, you know, speaking to Kyle's, um, statements. Uh, I feel like, yes, it's great when the sport coach comes to me, but I think I've also learned like over the last little bit here, Fergus Connolly has a great book called uh, game changer. And he talks about working your way from the sport on back to the physical demands of the game while being cognizant of the other uh, factors like, like uh, Kyle was referencing from tactical periodization. So for me, it's kind of changed how I've thought about things. Now I try to, you know, have like, if I need to know the sporting to have conversations with you guys, then work my way back and be aware of all the other components that you guys have to worry about so that I can somehow incorporate maybe certain things into what I'm doing. So I appreciate this. Like, this is something I want to do a lot more on the podcast is bring on uh, coaches like you just to, so I have a better understanding of of how to operate as well we do you know we just can't operate in silos and like you said max this is the time to get out of the silo so (laughs) you know but um but yeah no thank you very much guys appreciate your time and uh yeah let's uh let's stay in touch keep chopping it up